0: Oh, man, is everybody excited to talk about divorce? (laughs) I know I am. (laughs) Hi, everybody. Uh, My name is Darren and uh, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. Really excited that you're here. Uh, Before we dive into this complicated text, admittedly, uh, let me just uh, share a word of greeting to those of you who may be our guests today. We know that on Sundays there are people that come and you may have come with friends or family you might be in from out of town or maybe you're from the neighborhood and and maybe this is your first Sunday with us or maybe you've been kind of checking it out for a little while. We're really happy you're here. We just want you to know that you're seen and that you're loved. We're glad that you're visiting and that you're worshiping with us. We also want you to know that we don't see like being a guest as a permanent status. You know, like over time, we would want you to think about what it would look like for this to be home for you and for this to be your church. We'd rather you be family than be a, a welcomed guest. And so to that end, um, we've got a little gift for you. It's got information about our church. There's one of our Mark journals. The ushers are going to come down the aisle. And if you'll just get their attention however you want. So some people are nervous about raising up their hand or whatever, but grab their attention. They'll pass this to you. It's got some information about our church, ways to get connected, that sort of thing. But we would want anybody who's our guest today to walk out with one of these. I think there's a, a free coffee in in the well, that kind of thing. But take that with you. It's just one step towards uh, toward making this feel a little more like home if you're a guest. So there's that. While I'm talking about that, let me also say uh, we have an ongoing uh, I guess you could call it a meeting. It's like a scheduled meeting with a staff member or a leader in our church called OnRamp. And OnRamp is basically an opportunity to get together, to share our stories, to talk a little bit about who you are and where you come from, talk a little bit about our church, our background, our theology, the way we're organized, our history, all that that stuff. Um, a great chance to answer questions, like a two-way street, but it's kind of the first step towards, if you were thinking about membership here, that is the first step towards membership. You'd meet with somebody and have this conversation to go, is this a place where I feel at home and whatever. So if you have been around for a little while and you've never done on-ramp, I would say uh, go online and schedule one of those, or you can check in at the connect wall and you can schedule one there as well. But it's a great time. I actually really love facilitating on-ramp because it's kind of fun just to sit with you and talk about what God's doing in our church. So if you're, uh, if you're interested in that, I, I do some of those. There's a whole team of us that do them, but it'd be fun to have you uh, jump in on OnRamp as, a, uh, as just a way to get further connected. So there's that. Okay, last thing I have to say, and I said this in the first service last week, but I totally blanked on it in the second, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna back up to it and repeat it for you guys. Um, I want to articulate praise to God and gratitude for the way he moved in all of you. I don't know how closely you guys follow like the church finance stuff. I'm hoping that it's not a big deal to you and you're not necessarily like in the weeds on it. Um, But if you have been paying attention and if this is your church home, you know that heading into December, we were a little bit nervous about where our finances were and our budget. And obviously there's a ton of overhead costs and whatever in a facility this size. But if you've looked at the financial things uh, as we come into the beginning of the year, God moved in all of you in a really profound way. And I just want to say thanks. I want to thank. I want to say thank you for listening to the prompting of God. I want to thank you for your generosity. I want to thank you for the way we're kind of all in this together. And that requires sacrifice from everybody. That sacrifice doesn't all look the same. It's different because we're in different stages of life. But what we really saw, I mean, I think I, and I'm speaking now for the elders because we had a conversation about our last elder meeting, but we were very moved uh, by the way in which you all gave and contributed in December. Um, it was a very moving thing to see people kind of rally around to need, and we see God as the author of that, but we see him working through each of you as ambassadors, and so I just want to say thanks. I want to say I'm grateful. I was uh, I was teary-eyed for sure, as were some of the other elders, to just see uh, the way that God moved in you in December, so th- I want to say thanks to God and thanks to his movement in you, and just to acknowledge that's, that's a really cool thing, and we're excited about where God's taking us in the future, and those kinds of cool moments just kind of st- stoke the fire all the more, so thanks for that. Uh, okay, now let's talk about Mark 10. And and as we dive into Mark 10, I'll give you a little bit of background and we'll kind of walk through these verses. Um, But let me say this even before we get into the nitty gritty of the text. Because this passage is about divorce, um, I just want to say to you, as a, as a child of divorce, so my parents were divorced when I was 13, I grew up with a single mom, um, I, I just want to acknowledge that the moment we read that text a second ago, or if you've been part of the reading with us in an ongoing way, and you read this text earlier this week, there, there are many of us in the room where a passage about divorce becomes a trigger, you know what I'm saying? Uh, th- there are different ways we carry it. So for some of you, as you read this, as you think about what Jesus is saying, as you try and process some of that. It might bring up some shame and guilt about things that you've participated in. It might bring on some heaviness and pain because of things that happen in your family or with loved ones. There's a whole wide range of responses when we start to talk about divorce because it doesn't hit everybody the same. There are people who have gone through divorce and it hasn't necessarily traumatized them, but it's just like, It is what it is, and there are other people for which it's like one of the defining moments in their life. And so when we come to a text like this, we want to be really careful, and I want to say beforehand that I recognize the range of what can be happening in a room like this, and I'm doing my best as I preach through this to be sensitive and and careful about the, the varying responses in the room. Christine and I were even talking about it before the first service, and I said, it's tricky because there may be some of you sitting in the room who are married or going to be married someday, and there is a temptation for you to be thinking about your marriages flippantly, or like the Pharisees are doing here in Mark 10, to be looking for ways to wiggle out of your covenant and your commitment. And in that case, if you're the kind of person who might think casually about the marriage covenant, then what you really need is kind of what Jesus does here. You need a good poke in the ribs, right? A a little bit of a a poke in the ribs to go, hey, you're not thinking about this rightly. And I want God's word to be provocative to those of you who might be overly casual or flippant in the way you think about marriage. But there's another kind of person in the room who doesn't need a push. They're already very sensitive to it. In fact, they're kind of wounded by it. And in that case, I don't want those people to get punched in the ribs. Because they don't need any provocation in that particular way. In a moment like this, we're studying a text that moves people in a lot of different ways in in different places. I mean, the reality is you're probably sitting next to people that read this text with with a different set of goggles than you do as you sit in a room like this. For me what this requires is dependence upon the Holy Spirit to speak to you individually in ways that I can't as a human teacher. But what it also requires is for us as a community to be gracious to one another. And so I want to begin by saying, hey, if we get into this study today and it starts to stir you up and it starts to make you sad or starts to stir in you grief, like we want to walk in that with you together. If it stirs in you a sense of guilt and shame, Jesus's intention here is not to stir up guilt and shame, but to be provocative in the way we think about covenant, right? So if that's hard for you, let's walk that path together. What I want you to hear me say before we dive in is that the goal this morning is not to make anyone's existing pain worse. Does that make sense? We don't wanna make your existing pain worse and if it starts to do that, let's walk down that path together. But no, that's not my intention as a teacher and it's not Jesus' intention in the midst of the instruction, okay? So with all of that said, let's be gracious and kind to one another as we lean into a complicated text, okay? Okay. Now, Mark 10 sits in context with what we studied last week. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Jesus at the end of Mark 8 had said to his disciples, hey, if you want to be my follower, you have to follow me. And what that means is you have to be ready and willing to lay down your life. You have to die to yourself. You have to put yourself aside. And you have to live in the service and the glory of God and the service of others. And then what we saw in all of Mark 9 was you know, systematically one effort after another of the disciples trying to pick back up some little, little ounce of selfishness, right? Can I just hold on to a little bit of my arrogance? Can I hold on to a little bit of my power? Can I hold on to a little bit of my pride? Can I hold on to a little bit of my jealousy? And story after story after story, what we saw was Jesus going, no, if you're going to be my follower, you got to lay the whole thing down. There's no room for you to pick any of that back up, right? You got to lay all of that down and in humility and sacrifice be my follower. What follows here in Mark chapter 10, and it's true of the whole section, there, there's a whole section here where Jesus will talk about, here he's talking about marriage, but then he'll also talk about children, he'll talk about personal finances. Like we're going to step into a couple of things here. But Jesus is essentially emphasizing the same stuff. He's pointing still to sacrifice. And in particular, with the, with the question the Pharisees ask, what the Pharisees are angling at here, and we'll talk about this more in a second, what they're angling at more is the ability to justify their own appetites, right? They're wanting like permission from Jesus to do what they wanna do and be okay about that, right? So let's walk through it just kind of step by step and look at the way Jesus responds to this as I think it's instructive for all of us this morning. It says, Jesus left where he was and he went to the region of Judea uh, and beyond the Jordan, the crowds gathered him again. That regional information is important and I'll tell you why in a second. Says again, as was his custom, he taught the crowds. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, this is really interesting thing that happens. We we understand from Mark that the Pharisees were wanting to trap Jesus, so they were wanting to test him, but the nature of that test is not immediately clear. One hint that may help us out is that he gives us this regional information about the fact that now they're in the area of the Jordan. It's possible that what the Pharisees are trying to do is to trap Jesus in answering a question that John the Baptist had already answered and been executed for, right? So very recently in their history, Jesus' cousin John the Baptist had been very public in his criticism of King Herod and King Herod's divorce, King Herod's marital situation, Famously then John the Baptist was arrested and recently John the Baptist had been executed because he had been critical of King Herod's marriage arrangement. It's possible that what the Pharisees are doing here is they're trying to trap Jesus by getting him to either side with John the Baptist and put himself in harm's way with regard to Herod, or to to take another position than the position of John the Baptist, which then would have sort of called into question John the Baptist's position, right? That may be the nature of the trap. We don't really know what the test they're trying to lay is, but the other interesting thing about their question is that their question was not one that was hotly contested in the first century by Jewish leaders. What they asked Jesus in verse 2 is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And the answer, almost unanimously from the rabbinical writing at the time, is yes, it is lawful. If their question is only, is there a legal way to divorce your wife, there wasn't really any argument among rabbinical sources or among Jewish leaders as to whether or not there was a lawful way to get a divorce. It was kind of standard practice and everybody kind of accepted the fact that there was a lawful way to do it because Moses had written, and we'll look at this in a second, Moses had written a provision for divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So they used that to say it's lawful, full stop. Now, where there was some debate was about under what circumstances it was lawful, right? Under what circumstances? And if you read the rabbinic writing from the time period, there were rabbis who were very conservative and they would say, you can only get a divorce if there's been infidelity or you can only get a divorce. You know, there were others that would say, you know what, if she's not pleasing in your eyes, what it says in Deuteronomy 24, that could be, you know, if you don't like the way she cooks or that could be if she burns the toast, right? There were some rabbis who would go so far as to say, if you've simply found another woman who is more pleasing to you, more to your preference and your liking, then you can write your existing wife a certificate of divorce, divorce her, and marry the one you like a little bit better, right? So when we look at the rabbinical literature on this, and remember the Jewish custom was that they would take God's word and then you get a bunch of different opinions, right? And different people would read those different opinions inside in different places, when Matthew tells a similar story, the Pharisees in Matthew's story actually go so far as to say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever, which would have been one school of thought, and Jesus' responds to that. But here, they don't ask that clarifying question, they just say, is it allowed, is it lawful to get a divorce, right? Their question has, number one, a trap tied to it, but essentially what these what these disciples are asking is the very, excuse me, the Pharisees are asking is the same thing the disciples had asked in the earlier chapter. What they're asking is, is there a way for us to do the thing we want to do and not feel bad about it? Is there a way for us to do the thing that our appetites desire without feeling guilty, without feeling like we've broken the rules? Can you tell us what the exception is? We, we sort of get this, uh, I, I, uh, I will admit to you, I'm I'm in a little bit, not in trouble, but I've had jury duty. uh, I had jury duty two weeks ago, and then I had jury duty last week, and then I have jury duty again next week. And you're thinking, like, how, how does that happen? Well, the way it happened is two weeks ago, I called on Friday night, and they said, call on Monday to see if you have to report. I called on Monday, and they said, call on Tuesday to see if you have to report. And on Tuesday, I completely forgot I had jury duty. And then on Tuesday night, I checked the website, and I was supposed to report, and I didn't. I didn't show up. So I call the court and I was like, I think I broke the law. Like, please don't arrest me. That would be really bad for my resume, whatever. And the lady was nice. She's like, you know what? We're just gonna push your jury duty to next week, right? So last Friday night, I called in. They said, call in on Monday and you'll check and and see if you have to report. I called in, actually Monday, I didn't have to because it was a holiday. Then on Tuesday, I called in. They said, call in on Wednesday to see if you have to report. And on that Wednesday, I completely forgot I had jury duty again. (laughs) And I I check it Wednesday night, and once again, I have defaulted. I'm supposed to show up, and I didn't show. So I call the lady, and I hope it wasn't the same lady, but I don't know. And I was like, this is Darren again. I did the same thing. I set an alarm. I try to remember. I can't remember it. She goes, it's all right, man, but honestly, try to do this thing if you can, you know? So... She pushes me to this week, if you guys think of it, at 11.30, Monday through Friday this week, pray that I call in, right, will you just do that for me, because I don't want to keep defaulting on it. I am one of the rare, and I know I'm an anomaly in this, I'm one of the rare people that desperately wants to sit on a jury. I know most of you don't like that. Um, I'm a guy who wants to do it, and I have never been picked in my entire life, they never picked me, it's probably because I'm a pastor, and they just assume I'm a jerk, right, so they're like, no, no. I'm not a jerk, by the way, and I think I'd be a really good jerk. I don't have to defend this to you. I think I'd be good at it, but whatever. They never pick me. I really want to do it. Here's my whole point of my story. The moment that you tell people you have jury duty, there's a kind of a weird thing that happens. People come out of the woodwork to tell you how to get out of it. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know if you've experienced this, but every time I say to somebody like, oh, I got jury duty, the people are like, oh, you know how to get out of that. You just have to call this person. Or you just tell them that one of your legs is shorter than the other. Or you just tell them, like, one of your eyes doesn't work very good. Or, like, there's all kinds of ways. And all of the ways that people give you to get out of jury duty are technically allowable, right? They're technically acceptable, but, but they miss the whole heart and spirit of what jury duty is supposed to be, right? So I don't take the opportunity, even though I could feel okay about wiggling out, Instead, I just forget to call in, right? <laughs> what the Pharisees are trying to do here is to justify their own actions in a way that leaves them feeling okay about themselves. They say, is it, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They're trying to trap Jesus. Here's Jesus' response in verse three. He answered them, what did Moses command you? Now, this is a really interesting thing that Jesus does. He says, what does Moses command you? Well, inter- interestingly, Moses did not make a commandment for people to get divorced. There's no place where Moses says you should get divorced. What they will refer to, he says, what did Moses command you? Verse 4, they say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And they're right, but Jesus is going to push back on their interpretation, right? So what they're quoting from is Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, Moses writes in verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, that's the phrase that was interpreted very broadly by different rabbis. If the man finds some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, uh, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. Jesus says to them, what did Moses command you? And they say, well, Moses told us we could write certificates of divorce, which is kind of true, but also is a distortion of the very specific way in which Deuteronomy 24 is written. Deuteronomy 24 is written specifically to say, if you've written your wife a certificate of divorce for some reason, she gets married to somebody else, and then for some reason not in that marriage, you can't go back and marry her again. This Old Testament provision, Jesus will say, was written because of the hardness of people's hearts. That particular allowance was written by Moses to deal with the hardness of heart, the selfishness, the brokenness of people. But what Jesus will say here in Mark 10 is, just because Moses made that allowance because of your brokenness doesn't mean that it's God's best plan, doesn't mean that it's God's intention. Yes, there is a provision there where Moses gives you permission to write a certificate of divorce, but even the circumstance he's describing is pretty crummy, right? Right? The circumstance he's describing is all about selfishness, not to mention patriarchy, not to mention taking it, not to mention the way in which it sort of puts women uh, to, to sort of be under control. Now, again, again Deuteronomy is written a long time ago, and I'm thankful that we have made some progress with regard to the way we treat one another. But they say, Moses says we can write a certificate of divorce. Here's what Jesus says to that, Mark chapter 10. Jesus says in verse 5, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So he's talking here about their sin and selfishness, the the brokenness of humanity. But he says in verse 6, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He says, yeah, Moses made you this allowance because of your own sin and your own selfishness, but if you go back further, like let's let's go earlier than Deuteronomy 24 and see what God's original purpose and plan in marriage was. He goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. He quotes from Genesis and he articulates God's beautiful purpose for marriage. He says if you're trying to figure out what you should do in your circumstance, don't look at Deuteronomy, which was just an allowance for wickedness. And the brokenness there, he says, but look at what God's purpose is. One, one writer I was studying this week said, it would be like if you were learning how to fly and the way you were trying to teach yourself how to fly was by reading all of the manuals on how to have a good crash landing, right? Right? What Moses writes is a provision for the failing of a marriage, right? What Moses writes is a provision for the brokenness that can occur in marriage, but Moses isn't talking about God's purpose. He's not talking about the beautiful way in which it can succeed. So if you look at that crash landing plan and you take that as your instruction for how to function in marriage, you've missed something important. Jesus says, go back further. Now, coincidentally, what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, what we see in Genesis is also written by Moses. So when Jesus says, what did Moses command you? They just, they just quote something a little too late. He says, no, go all the way back and look at what Moses wrote about God's purpose in marriage. His guidance there, his guidance in 24 is, is for when marriages fail and guidance for when marriages fail is no help in understanding God's hope and intention for marriage. Moses in 24 is limiting a problem, not licensing a practice. Limiting a problem not licensing a practice. But isn't it interesting how often when we see places in the Bible where God is sort of giving us guidelines and he's sort of giving us these directions and what he's trying to do is limit our brokenness, limit the way we might otherwise treat each other, trying to mitigate the fallenness in our relationships with each other in some way if he can, we start to take that as a licensing of practice rather than a limiting of a problem, Right? Jesus says, go back further and look at God's good purpose. And he quotes from Genesis here to broaden their view, to reset their view with God's original plan. Here's, here's what he says in, uh, in verse 6 and following. He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He goes, from the beginning, men and women were both made in God's image. God's image. There's, there's equity there, right? But what we also understand from Genesis is that it wasn't good for the man to be alone. Remember that whole story in Genesis 2 where all the animals come by, right, and none of them are a good partner for Adam? God says, I'm going to make you somebody who's a good fit, someone who's like you, right? And And man and woman are created, and they leave their old alliances. They leave their old connection. It says here, God made men and women in his image, and then it's for this reason that the husband will leave his father and mother. So they have this blood connection with their, with their literal parents. And the father, and the, or excuse me, the, the husband and the wife will leave their blood ties and they will come together and form a new union, a new covenant that essentially becomes a new bloodline, right? It's a brand new family connection. It says here, as it says in Genesis, God made the male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife or cleave to his wife or cleave to, cling to his wife. And the two become one. The two become one flesh. Now, sometimes this text, when it talks about one flesh, that can sometimes, people can just sort of boil that all the way down to sexual intimacy. But the idea of one flesh is, is not explicitly about sex, right? It includes sex, but what one, the one flesh union is more about kinship. It's a more about a lifelong, permanent, covenant family bond, right? Now, sexual intimacy, according to the Bible, has been placed only under one flesh union, right? It's only permissible and allowable inside that one family bond, that permanent kinship, right? That's where sexual activity is meant to take place. But being one flesh is not about having sex, right? Being one flesh is about covenant with each other to leave everything else and to form this new union, right? He says, God, from the very beginning, gave you the opportunity to show his covenantal love, to replicate and demonstrate his covenantal love. A man shall leave his father and mother, verse seven, hold fast to his wife and the two become one. They become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. It's very similar to what Jesus has just said about discipleship. When he talks about discipleship in in Mark chapter eight, he says, hey, if you wanna follow me, you gotta leave who you were. You gotta leave all your plans. You gotta leave all your agendas. You gotta leave all of your pride and your greed and your jealousy. And you gotta die to yourself and we are gonna form a new family here, right? He calls them to die to themselves. What Jesus is advocating here, he says, you're asking me how to get out of your marriage, but you've missed what marriage is. Marriage is meant to be a permanent covenant with one another that replicates and reveals the covenantal love of God for his people. So when you ask the question, you're asking almost a nonsensical question. There is no context in which God would ever be looking at us and saying like, you know what, I think I've had enough of this. Now, there's all kinds of reasons why he would, right? There's all kinds of reasons why God might look at me and go, you know what? I thought this guy was going to be nicer. I thought he was going to be a little funnier. I didn't know he was going to be so bald. I'm out, right? But God doesn't break his commitments. He doesn't break his covenants and marriage from the beginning. It says here in verse 9, what God has joined together, let not man separate, right? They're no longer two. They've abandoned themselves. It's why in Ephesians 5 it talks about the fact that husbands and wives are supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for God. Ephesians 5 talks about the fact that marriage is about sacrifice, right? It's very interesting. There's a picture here of God's covenant a holy union that should not be separated. Why? Because when a marriage covenant becomes divorced or becomes separated, it ruins the picture of God's love, which never does that. There is no time when God walks away from us. So Jesus says, rather than trying to find a way out of jury duty or trying to find a way out of your commitments, what you should be doing instead is thinking about the beautiful gift of marriage, which is an opportunity to put God's covenant love on display. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31 articulates this really well. It says, therefore, and it's quoting some of the same stuff, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This covenant and this commitment is meant to be a picture of God's permanent lifelong covenant to us and divorce distorts that picture. So when you're just trying to find a way to justify your own actions, you're not thinking about what this is intended to do, the gift that it actually is. God does not break his covenants with us. Isaiah chapter 54 verse 10 says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Romans chapter 8 verse 35 it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is the love of God for us like? That's what's meant to be typified or demonstrated in our marriage covenants. We put God's covenant on display. It's interesting, when I do... um, when I when I officiate weddings, you know, I have conversations with people in advance, obviously. And one of the things I say to them in like my premarital counseling is I say, If, if you're getting married because you think you found someone who will make your life better, you're probably gonna end up divorced. Right? If your whole motivation is, well, I found this person, they make me laugh, and they're so cute, and they're so strong, and they're so fun, and they like everything we do just is, feels better in every way when we're together. So I want to get married. Well, if that's your reason for getting married, sooner or later that person's not gonna feel fun, and they're not gonna seem that smart, and they're not gonna seem that strong, and they're not gonna seem that great. And if that's why you got married to make your life better, to improve your life, you will be tempted to walk away from your marriage. But what the marriage commitment is intended to be is that you found this person and you say to yourself, I could see myself laying down all of my desires and all of my wants and all of my preferences to serve this other human being for the rest of my life. I want to spend the rest of my days serving this person. If that's the reason you're getting married, because you mutually have decided that you want to spend the rest of your life serving one another for the glory of God, that's a recipe for marital success. Because no matter whether the guy you marry is a knucklehead or whether the lady you marry burns the toast or whatever, it doesn't matter there will always be an opportunity to serve more, to give more, to sacrifice more, right? So if you're getting into it for sacrifice, it will last. If you're getting into it to improve your life, it'll fall apart. The same thing is true with our following of God. If you're following Jesus for what you get out of it, sooner or later you'll quit following Jesus because there are days where you don't get nothing out of it. It's all a picture of discipleship, right? I also say to young couples, I say, you know, uh, you can use traditional vows But uh, you also have the option to write your own vows, and that's a pretty trendy thing to do, kind of common. People write their own vows. But one of the things I say to young couples is, if you're going to write your own vows, they better be vows, right? Make them vows. This is a covenant, right? So we've all been to weddings where, like, they're like, oh, Susie and Robbie decided to write their own vows, and then Robbie pulls a piece of paper out of his jacket pocket, and it's like, Susie... You remind me of the wind. And every time the sun rises, I recall the time we had scrambled eggs. And they were so, you know, and you're like, what is going on? It's like a really weird and cute poem, I guess. It means a lot to them, but there's no commitment in it right? There's no vows. It's just saying nice things about each other that you wrote on a piece of paper. I'm fine with, you know, fiancés saying nice things to one another, but a wedding is about commitment. It's about covenant. It's about vow. So I say to young couples, I want you to write your vows if that's what you want to do, but I'd like to see them because I don't want to be standing up there in front of people while you read your cute poem that has no covenant in it, right? It has no cute covenant. I, w- I want to see the covenant, Because that's the purpose here. God is faithful to us and he gives us the opportunity in marriage to do our best to replicate that faithfulness. It's interesting, back to Mark chapter 10, in the house later, now we got private teaching. Jesus has said this to the, or to, the, to the Pharisees. Now in 10, the disciples in the house ask him again about the matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Remember the idea here is that the Pharisees are trying to find a way to do the thing their appetites demand, the thing that, that feels right to them and, and find some sort of legal way out of it. Jesus is saying to his disciples here when he talks about uh, adultery, he's essentially saying what you're thinking about is what's good for you. But he's like, "Don't, don't forget that when you break a covenant with somebody else, not only do you mar the image of God, but you actually hurt the person that you vowed to. That person that you covenanted with, and anybody in this room who's been affected by divorce, whether you've been through divorce... Whether you're currently going through that, whether your parents or your grandparents or whatever, if you've been through divorce, you understand there isn't, there isn't anybody who goes through divorce without pain. It is always painful. It always hurts. The only time I've ever, ever, ever heard people talk about divorce without pain is when we're talking about a fictional character on a modern-day television program or movie, and sometimes those people will be like, oh, I love divorce. I can't wait to get my next divorce, right? But practically, when you talk to human beings who've gone through the breakup of a covenant relationship, it only ever stinks. It only ever hurts, right? My parents were divorced when I'm 13. It still hurts me now, right? It's painful. Jesus says, when you do this, when you you ditch your wife for your own preferences and your own appetites and you marry somebody else, you're committing adultery against her. It's not just something that you're doing. It's not just a distortion of who God is, but you're actually hurting someone else. There's this adultery that's committed against the person you made the vow with, right? You're trying to justify that. Now, when he's talking here about adultery, I want to be really clear about a couple of things because that that is a passage that's been weaponized. There are some of you sitting in the room who have been divorced and are remarried, and you've maybe heard people go, oh, you know what? Jesus says if you got remarried, that's adultery. So what that means is you're living in a state of perpetual and ongoing adultery, right? Every day that you remain married to your second wife or your third wife or whatever, that's just adultery after adultery after adultery after adultery. So there are some people who've read a text like this and will say, You know what, if you're remarried, you need to break that thing off, right? That is not at all what Jesus is saying. And remember, what Jesus is not trying to do here is to pile shame and guilt on people who already feel shame and guilt. What Jesus is trying to do is to send a shot to the ribs of people who would think about their marriage covenant flippantly or lightly, right? What he's not saying is that you will live in a state of perpetual uh, adultery. It's similar in, in the hyperbolic nature of it to when Jesus says, any of you who've ever looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you commit adultery. Guess what? That's everybody. He says, any of you who've ever had hatred in your heart toward another human being, you murdered them. Guess what? that's everybody. We talk about this a lot here, but everybody's busted and everybody's broken and all of us have failures in our actions and our attitudes and our thoughts and our approaches, all of us. So part of what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to set their sights on the good gift of what marriage can be, but he's also reminding them how much they need his grace. The reality is that divorced or not, remarried or not, You need the grace of God, just like me, just like the people in this section and the people in this section and this one and this one and all the people that live in these neighborhoods. All of us are busted. We all need a savior. That's why the message of the gospel is so powerful. Jesus isn't trying to heap more pain and guilt and shame upon people who already feel pain and guilt and shame. If you're here this morning and you're one of those who already feels the pain of it, yeah, that's because divorce stinks, I don't know anybody who thinks differently or who's experienced it differently. Jesus isn't contradicting that, but he's also not trying to to pile on guilt, right? Jesus is not condemning anyone. He's not piling on guilt and shame. He's not even condemning the Pharisees. What he's doing is advocating for the disciples to treasure God's gift in marriage, to fight to reveal Christ in our covenants, and to think very seriously about the places where we're tempted to serve our own appetites rather than God's good purpose in loving and serving others. There is one kind of person in the room that I would want to sort of take this on the chin today. There is one person in the room that I would want to read verses 10 through 12 and feel a sense of kind of nausea. <clears throat> and that's the, the person for, in the room for whom their marriage has become something to cast aside easily somebody who's sort of become flippant or careless about their covenant and their vows. If you're a person in the room who's kind of thinking like, "Ah, this is just not fun to be married. It doesn't doesn't make me happy anymore. I want to do something else. I would say Jesus wants to say to you, it's worth fighting for. It's worth leaning into. But for those of you who've already fought that battle, and in some cases lost, for those of you who had no choice in it, for those of you who've been divorced, what he's not trying to say is like, oh man, you're worse than anybody else. What he's saying is, there was a thing worth fighting for. And what I find is that most people who've been through divorce already know that, right? They already know that it was worth fighting for, and yet, and yet it, didn't it didn't work. It didn't work. Jesus isn't trying to heap on guilt and shame. He's trying to point out the goodness of doing everything we can to maintain that picture of God's beautiful covenant love. That said, we're all busted. Marriage is hard. Divorce is harder. Nobody likes divorce. But I will also say this. I do believe, and the Bible teaches this, that sometimes divorce is necessary, right? that there are circumstances, it's not every time and in every case, but there are certain circumstances where I do believe that that divorce is necessary. Typically, that's when, because of human brokenness and fallenness, divorce is necessary in order to prevent greater ongoing harm. Does that make sense? So for someone who's in an abusive relationship and they've done everything they can to try and protect themselves and their children, for someone who's in uh, uh, an ele- like an illegal situation, there are all kinds of places where where I think that if you were to ask Jesus, like, does a woman have to keep going back to a guy again and again and again to be physically abused? I do not think Jesus would say, yeah, just stick in there. I think Jesus would go, you know, there are times where my hatred of violence, my hatred of violence would say, you know what, you need to to protect yourself and your children. There are circumstances, right? Jesus, Jesus doesn't say that divorce can never happen. He says, let it not happen. What that means is your intent should be to avoid that. It's interesting, um, When it comes to remarriage, I think, again, there are people who feel really guilty and they read a text like this and they're like, can we even glorify God? I had a great conversation with a couple right after our services, uh, the first service that is a couple, I didn't know this, so they just told me today, but who have both been divorced and remarried, and I will tell you that they're a good example, but they're not the only example. A second marriage or a third marriage can absolutely reveal the covenantal love and commitment and faithfulness of God it can absolutely happen. What, what's that called? That's called redemption, right? That's called a path of reconciliation redemption. If you're a person who's in a second marriage, you don't need to carry a ton of weight about making that decision. Instead, recognize that you may have made mistakes or somebody else may have made mistakes or you may have been victimized. There's all kinds of ways that happen. But if you've been divorced, the opportunity now is not to be defined by things that happened in the past, but to allow this moment now to be defined by your pursuit, faithful pursuit, of the covenantal love of God on display in your life and in the lives of those you serve right second marriages third marriages can absolutely emulate the covenantal commitment of God right Jesus says let no one separate let no one separate there's an intent there and I think in all of this and I'll I'll finish here I think in all of it you and I have to allow the grace of God to be our instructor we have to allow the grace of God to be our instructor one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible is in Titus chapter 2 And in Titus chapter two, it talks about the grace of God. Titus 2.11 says, let me pull it up here because if I quote it, I'll mess it up. Titus 2.11 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. If you're the kind of person who's only been instructed by your own regret or only been instructed by your own guilt or only been instructed by the shame that other people have heaped on you or the shame you've heaped on yourself, what Titus is saying to you is rather than letting your guilt and shame be your teacher or your professor, why don't you look to the grace of God, which we all need, and allow his grace to be the thing that shapes your holiness going forward, that shapes your pursuit of godliness while you await the return of Jesus. Allow his grace to be the thing that dictates how you see yourself and how you see others. Let his grace be your teacher. I don't know where you sit this morning. There are some of you for whom... Maybe you're thinking flippantly about the marriage covenant and I would want you to hear as clearly as possible that Jesus says, that's not God's plan for you, to throw that away and to be flippant about it. There are others of you who are in real trauma and distress and I would wanna say to you, man, could we please walk alongside you and make sure you're safe as you figure out the nuances of some of these things. There are others of you in the room who divorce isn't on your radar, maybe it never will be, Lord willing, praise God for that, but this instructs you in the way you interact with other people. And there are some of you in the room who've been judgy of those who've gone through these things and I would just want to encourage you, will you let grace be your teacher too? When we deal with the brokenness other people have experienced, they don't need more shame and guilt. What they need is to see a picture of God's perfect lifelong covenantal love put on display in our relationships with one another. Would you pray with me? God, this is so hard because there's just so many different people in the room who are coming at it in so many different ways. So I pray that your grace would would rest in this place and that you would meet each individual story and circumstance with your unique love and grace and mercy and tenderness. Will you meet us where we're at and will you draw people to yourself? Will you help us to see how beautiful covenant love is, both the covenant love primarily that you offer to us, but that you give us a chance to taste that in our relationships with each other is a great gift. Help us to treasure it and also to to mourn its loss but not to be defined by that when we prove our fallenness. Thank you that you love us and you guide us and that you give us your grace to be more like you tomorrow. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.